century country, Canada, and this gives me a great advantage in looking at the 20th century. The 20th century is the age of electric technology. It's the most dominant tool of our time. It is causing you to reconsider and reevaluate every thought and every institution you formerly took for granted. I know exactly where the boundaries of the 20th century begin. Mostly they begin in the United States. So any Canadian can see what you cannot see. That is, you live in the 20th century, more or less, and it becomes, therefore, invisible. The electric age is changing you. It is changing your family. It is changing your neighborhood. It's changing your education. It's changing your job. When this circuit learns your job, what are you going to do? changing your government. It's changing your relationship to others. These little circuits are making our world go. The electric age is having a profound effect on us. We are in a period of fantastic change that's coming about at fantastic speed. Your life is changing dramatically. And you are numb to it. Welcome to uh, our 46th episode of Quarantine, when we finally get around to answering the question, what have we done to ourselves? What have we created? I'm Peter Hirschberg, and on today's episode, we're going to dig into how the creation of new media is changing mankind and how it may well be a form of evolution. And we're going to do it with uh, Andrew McLuhan, grandson of Marshall McLuhan, probably the foremost scholar of helping us understand all of these things. Uh, here's my co-host, Mickey McManus. Hey, Mick. Hey, Peter. Um, I'm excited. This is the 47th edition. It's very hard to keep track of all the, of all the quarantines, but uh, we have hit the 47th episode. And, um, I feel like I want to be kind of uh, a student because while I've heard of Mal, uh, Marshall McLuhan and, and, and I've, I've certainly uh, seen some of his, his talks and I've seen some of the, some of the film and little clips like you just showed, um, I feel a little naive about, about it, uh, although I, I deeply understand this notion that uh, information does not have form. And, and it's only through the through the medium that it actually has form. If I say, hey, I like that cup, you don't know what cup I mean unless I give you a little more information. Maybe I say that cup and I point to it, or maybe uh, I say I like the tall cup. Well, that doesn't even give you the information. If there's if there are like five tall cups, I might have to say I need the green tall cup. And so, so information is shaped by the medium I use. In this case, I'm pointing or I'm using my voice. Um, and so information has no form, and it gets formed through the medium, and and uh, and that's a that's a deep part of the study that I have made in trillions in our book and in in the work that I did at Maya, um, and I'm super excited to hear from Andrew and also to get a sort of secret uh, dive into the archives of the McLuhan Institute and learn a little bit more more about what's happening there. Um, I'd love to bring uh, Andrew on. By the way, the way we should do it is to paraphrase Woody Allen and say, I just happen to have Andrew McLuhan right here. Oh, that's hey, Andrew. Nice. Hey, Andrew. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's uh, it's really nice to be here in, in quarantine with you. Not too close, just close yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, um, so much of our audience is from Silicon Valley, and you could argue that the work we do here is inventing new forms of media 
figuring out what to do with them, and then dealing with their consequences. And, and, and it's perhaps because we don't all bring some framework to this that allows us to anticipate what we might be doing next, that we get into the trouble we get. So maybe we should start yeah. at the beginning. I mean, I think, I think you guys down there do most of the tinkering and the rest of us uh, deal with most of the fallout, don't we? <laughs> when I first joined Apple uh, in the 80s, and I had studied, I'd studied McLuhan, as you know, I had studied with Tony Schwartz, who'd worked closely with your grandfather. Yeah. And um, I was keenly aware that I was there and we were giving birth to a new medium, like people were supposed to use this to do something. It was completely not clear to us what that thing was or where, where the media fit. And I remember when I first came out here, um, there was a Wall Street Journal article one night that said, perhaps personal computers are fads. And then there was a wonderful article in the New York Times called Finding Home Computer Uses. And they kind of understood the, they understood the, the um, uh, you know, the gaming thing and it wasn't yet communications yet. And it was very keenly aware of that. Let's start at the beginning. Well, I want to go back to, uh, just while you're there, Peter. Yeah. So I'm reading a book written by the creator of a very well-known video game that came out on the Apple II. And 20 years later, or 30 years later, he actually put a book together of his sketches when he was 18 years old. And the book is just beautiful. I'll go grab it during one of the breaks. But um, but you actually see his actual notes. And he's like, I'm not sure video games are going to be a thing. So I really want to become a screenwriter in Hollywood. But right now, I guess I have the most successful game that has ever been done in the planet. And, and, and he really did at that time. But the question of whether computers, PCs, this new medium would become something or games would become something. Um, was was an open question. And it's very hard for if you were born later to understand it, but that's happening today. I mean, I see synthetic biology and that's going to be a new medium for collaboration, for exchange, for dealing with our planets, but we don't quite understand it yet. And and it's literally what makes life life. So they're, that they are, our, our kids are going through that revolution. It's gonna be a biological century. So what does that medium look like when you can kind of take a pill and grow wings or who knows what? Um, an interesting, well, yes. each, each so generation has to litigate it differently, I think. Marshall McLuhan, right, came from the very literary world and observed this switch from the print literary world to what we have now and perhaps moving on to something else. Andrew, why don't you fill us in a little bit about uh, who Marshall McLuhan was, how he was a literary scholar, and then what happened that he understood something about media and took the world by storm. Well, that's a crazy thing. Uh, and it's hard to really grapple with that. Marshall McLuhan, this person who um, understood so deeply um, what technologies do, was actually an English literature professor for his entire career. Um, and that's a fact that, that can't be ignored because it's really out of uh, the field of literature, um, literary criticism, that he came to understand how technologies work. And it's it's crazy and it sounds crazy, but basically he took um, a lot of the things he learned for uh, literary criticism, for understanding the effects of language and literature, and he turned them to um, technology and culture and understanding the effects of technologies and cultures. Um, it seemed crazy at the time. It makes a little more sense now, uh, and especially since he developed his work over several decades and came to the conclusion that um, all our technologies are basically extensions of ourselves and they all have the same or similar properties to our languages. So um, if, if that's the case, then it makes sense that somebody who's an expert in languages and what we do with them, i.e. literature, um, would understand a lot about the effects of technologies if they understand the effects of language and literature. Um, so it's, it's a kind of quirky thing that um, shouldn't work, but it does. Uh, and it's a really interesting thing. Uh, Mickey, I, I as well am a student. Um, I, you know, I grew up around the stuff. My father, Eric, was Marshall's oldest son and, and colleague for many years. Um, and I've been studying it um, pretty hardcore part-time for, for only about 10 years. And I feel like I've only just begun. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's really a huge, complex uh, world of um, associations and peripheral figures and um, subjects on the edges. The, the irony is that I'm a McLuhan specialist, but in order to be a McLuhan specialist, you really have to be a generalist because 
he drew from all these different fields, from economics, from history, from hmm. uh, biology, from sciences, from literature, from uh, ancient Greece, uh, from everything, from poetry especially. Um, hmm. And he, he, he brought all these ancient sources up to the present. But then when he got to the present, he discovered this amazing thing. And that is that we can use uh, what's happening today um, in the arts to understand what's happening today to us via technology. Um, and I, I think we're going to get into this, but um, the, the reasoning is that, um, you know, all the, these new technologies affect us uh, very profoundly and every major technology kind of remakes us and then we respond by remaking culture. And so mm -hmm. by keeping an eye on the changes in culture, the changes in language and painting and music and poetry across all these arts, you keep an eye into those changes and you can extrapolate um, in theory, maybe in practice, what's actually happening technologically. And well, fact, I love this. I love this idea that, you know, um, he had to be a generalist to really understand. It, and you've had to become more of a generalist because I, I'm very interested in how things don't stay in their buckets. They don't stay in their in their safe little boxes. You know, the the act of you doing something changes the changes you and the thing, as you're saying. And and something from language and literature. I mean, that was a early technology invented by humans. Yeah. And 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 that isn't, you know, it, it doesn't stay safely where it is. It it sort of starts infecting the way we think. Turns, and then yeah. It turns out that the study of technology, the study of media, is really the study of environments. It's an environmental science mm. of another kind. Um, well, and, and a lot of the a lot of the shaping functions seem to be built into the environment, but we don't recognize the environment. So much of, you know, one of our past guests, uh, uh, Kay Foster, said, um, "Context is decisive." And her point was that, like, when she wanted to change her her whole life, she actually moved to another another state, yep. and it changed her life because she had to do things. That's and it. behavioral psychologist Ting Jiang, who's been on the show has said that one of the most important moments to take advantage of if you're trying to build a new healthy habit is the moment you move sure. because you're immersed in a new environment. And so the environment encodes the rules in some interesting ways that we don't maybe even see. By that one same of the first way, examples I, of encoding an environment that McLuhan talks about is really uh, the invention of, of printing, right? As we went from an oral culture to a written culture and the fact that things are written they're orderly, they're linear, they're in a book, he says, leads to the assembly line, leads to enlightenment, orderly thinking, moves us from kind of a tribal to a very literate culture. Uh, why don't you begin, and, and of course, all of this was laid out in his seminal 1965 book, Understanding Media, but why don't we begin at the beginning and talk a little bit about his observations of how our literate world formed us, and, and then we can understand how we're deforming that today. Sure. Um, well, he, you know, he breaks a lot of that down in his 1962 book, which won the Canadian Governor General's Award for Nonfiction in 1962. And that's the Gutenberg Galaxy, the making of typographic man. Um, mm. Understanding media, the extensions of man came out two years later in 1964. Um, Gutenberg Galaxy was all about print um, print technology, Gutenberg, the inventor of the modern printer press and arguably, you know, much of Western civilization. Uh, but it goes back a little bit further to uh, the invention of the alphabet. Um, and the yeah. alphabet combined with the printing press um, were, was a powerful explosion. Uh, what the alphabet did, uh, the phonetic alphabet in particular, was it, it abstracted sense from sound so that it, it made... Uh, it divorced the two things, and Marshall's read on this was that this gave birth to objectivity. So being able to separate mm. um, sound from sense uh, metaphorically and literally allowed for the separation of, of a person from, from an object. It allowed for, for a conceptual distance, which allowed for certain things like reason and logic, um, the ability to, to think about things without being... Uh, deeply, deeply involved in them. Um, and, and this was uh, a major delineation the time before the alphabet, which uh, he refers to as pre-literacy, and the time after, which is the literacy, which reigned for, you know, the better part of 3,000 years, 
um, up until uh, the advent of electric technologies. Um, it hit its peak with the printing press. And what the printing press did was it took this, uh, this idea of um, uh, reproduction uh, units and uh, extended people's not just print because uh, we'd had writing in the form of, um, you know, scrolls and manuscripts and things like that. But all of a sudden the printing press made it possible to um, reproduce things um, exactly the same way. So you could print a thousand copies of something and distribute it. Um, and that allowed for the spread of ideas, but it also allowed, he, he drew a parallel between that and the essence of machine technology um, which is the same thing. It's the breaking up of a large object into component parts, um, which is what assembly line did. Um, he argued that was the, the height of, of the literate age, which, which came to an end with uh, electricity and electric technologies beginning with the telegraph and moving from the telegraph to the telephone, to the radio, to the television, uh, up into the present day and beyond. Um, and the curious, the curious thing, uh, he suggests is that um, the effect of electricity and electric technologies was to, as far as extensions of, of our being goes, was to extend our nervous system, our entire nervous system outside of ourselves and into a global embrace. Um, and this, this had a lot of profound effects. It, uh, it undid a lot of this, this work of distance and objectivity and separation which were the hallmarks of, of the mechanical age, the literate age. Um, and it, if it didn't take us back to pre-literacy, it took us to post-literacy, which is not quite the same thing. And we can see today, as there's a rise of either fake news, or do you believe this, or I have my own truth, or uh, you know, some lack of objectivity, it's almost predicted as you go back into what he would call a more tribal world where people behave like that and we didn't have the singular true north of truth, um, mm. which we're going to get to. Um, you know, this almost reminds me of Walt Whitman too, you know, the sort of all the cells that make you make me and the, the idea that we are that we are many and multiple and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, was he influenced by people like Walt Whitman and, and, and poets or other, other philosophers? He certainly paid attention to them um, for the reasons mm -hmm. that we're talking about. And if you want, you, you want to understand the poet, you want to understand the age. So Whitman was late mm -hmm. 19th century, right? He mm -hmm. was at the, the beginning of the dawn of the electric age. And so um, Marshall really drew on uh, the poets of that time, Baudelaire particularly, the French symbolists he makes a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, and people like James Joyce. <laughs> you know, mm. I don't know if we want to get into Joyce, but uh, you I'm know, still trying uh, to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and me too. Um, Marshall uh, Marshall relied very very heavily on them to show to illustrate because as I as I was saying, you know, we we live in these technological circumstances, these environments. And they shape ourselves, they shape our senses, uh, they shape how we thereafter interact with the world. Um, and and that if, that's illustrated by uh, our content, you know, our product. So Marshall basically read the content and worked backward. He liked to um, liken his method to that of, of the detective. Um, mm. and he thought a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. And the method of the detective is um, that you start with the body, and you try to figure out who killed it, who done it, how did it get there? So mm. Marshall, Marshall would say, I, I begin with effects and I work back to causes, you know? So it's kind of reverse engineering. Fundamental to his thinking was this notion that the thing that changes us the most is the nature of the medium, not its content, hence the medium is the message. And this notion that each new medium is some new capacity extension of us. Let's take a look at a mm. clip of that. All media are extensions of some human faculty, mental or physical. The wheel is an extension of the foot. The book is an extension of the eye. Clothing is an extension of the skin. Electric circuitry is an extension of the central nervous system. The extension of any one sense displaces the other senses and alters the way we think, the way we see the world and ourselves. When these changes are made, men change. 
I know, uh, for example, a big business in Toronto where all the private offices have been uh, dissolved, all the walls have been pulled out so that the um, participants in this business can sit together around tables in the middle of the big office space so that they can watch each other's responses to stocks and uh, world events and so on. They want a, a perpetual dialogue going on among themselves as a response to world events. The instantaneous world of electric informational media involves all of us, all at once. Ours is a brand new world of all at once-ness. Time, in a sense, has ceased, and space has vanished. Like primitives, we now live in a global village of our own making, a simultaneous happening. So a lot going on there. This notion that we are, that each of these new media extends us also suggests that when we do that, in a way, we amputate that function, right? When we get into a car, we're kind of disconnected from the ground and our feet disappear. And even today, when you disappear into a cyberspace or you're on a Zoom call all day, in a way, your body disappears and you, and you, and you go into that, into that matrix. He was keenly aware of how changing media changes us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is uh, this is the subtitle of his 1964 work, Understanding Media: The Extensions of Man. Um, so mm -hmm. you know, it was uh, he later co-authored with my father Eric a book called Laws of Media: The New Science, which was an attempt to um, come up with general statements which can be made of all technologies, uh, mm -hmm. and they came up with four. One of them was that every technology enhances some human function, um, enhances, extends. Um, so, uh, you know, we create a new technology to speed up something or uh, to make it more effective or to make uh, our lives easier one way or another. You know, um, the microphone extends our voice. Uh, the speaker allows other people to hear us, et cetera, et cetera. So this is one of the, the four effects, the laws of media. Um, and as you mentioned, Peter, there's there's a kind of a, a flip side of that, um, that every time we, we extend a sense, um, we kind of numb its its origin, which is a, a curious thing. Um, and, and the other thing which you brought up is, is that um, we, ex we extend these, these things, our senses, and we know um, that when you enlarge or enhance one sense, um, when you toy with any sense, whether you're enhancing it or numbing it, you affect all your senses because our, our senses exist in this equilibrium, this ratio, um, something that a long time ago was referred to as the sensus communis. Um, and people are, are keenly aware of this, for instance, when they go blind at, at, at a stage in their life and they find that all of a sudden they're able to hear a lot better, um, their sense of touch is heightened, when we affect one sense, it, it affects them all. Um, and, and we see that in our environment. Uh, when you affect your nervous system, your entire nervous system, uh, well, you, you have a whole lot of sensitivities coming up. So, wait, Andrew, you were articulating the four, the four <laughs> laws that your father and, and Marshall had come up with. And you talked about enhances human function. And then we got kind of there. What were the other three? Yeah. Um, so when when you enhance a function, um, we create a new tool and it sort of takes over for, for something else. Uh, mm. and, and that's the obsolesce. So mm. enhance obsolesce. And obsolesce doesn't mean that, um, that it dies or it goes away. You know, uh, TV, the television was obsolesced by the internet, by Netflix. It's constantly being re-obsolesced, but it's still very much with us. Um, it, it's I, I want to stop on the obsolescence thing too. When yeah. I was an intern, I'm a product designer. And so when I was interning uh, in college, I got to work for a summer at a place called Brooks Stevens. And you probably have never heard of Brooks Stevens, but um, Brooks Stevens was one of the sort of titans of the 40s, 50s, 60s for industrial design. So there was, uh, you know, there was Raymond Lowy and Norman Balgettis, uh, uh, Dreyfus and, and uh, um, Brooks Stevens. He's the one who coined the phrase planned obsolescence. And he introduced the idea of a model year for cars. Cool. You know, because then people would buy more cars. You know, yeah. you would obsolesce them. Well, and, and so it's weird that it got co-opted into this, you know, 
Marshall had a lot to say about obsolescence. He said, um, hmm. obsolescence never meant the death of anything. He said, uh, hmm. obsolescence is the matrix of all innovation. Um, hmm. so, you know, uh, obsolescence is, is a period of rich activity. Uh, it's, it's not at all the death of something. It's a rebirth, in fact. It's a change. Hmm. It's, it's a new role. Um, so enhance, obsolesce. Another, another is retreat. Um, he and my father, they were working on this together, and actually what they were doing was trying to make a 10th anniversary of revision of understanding media, um, mm. enhance, obsolesce. They found that um, every technology that comes around brings something back from the past. Uh, oh. And they have a whole field of that now called media archaeology, which seems to be devoted to, to studying old technologies. Um, <laughs> when, when thinking about tetrads and, and applying it to a technology, this retrieve is the hardest for me because tell me what a tetrad is. I just I'm sorry, I feel yeah, kind of dumb here. They they called they called this thing they came up with the tetrad because tetrad just means any a group of four. And they ah, fit, okay. they their object was to find laws of media, that is, things that every technology does, everything from human speech to the fork to hmm. to any anything human. And that's the criteria. It has to apply in all cases. Um, if it doesn't apply in all cases, it's not a law, a capital yeah. law. Yeah. So they found they ended up finding four things. Um, the retrieval is hardest for me because in order to to know what something is retrieving from the past, well, you need to know a lot about the past. Otherwise, you'll never come up with it. Um, so retrieval, and then the final the final part of the tetrad. Although it, it's very important to note that. This isn't one, two, three, four. Um, mm. All these effects are simultaneously present in the technology. It's not uh, like it yeah. is, then it obsolesces. No, these things all happen at once. We just um, we name them in an order, kind of for convention's sake, to be able to remember them. Um, yeah. But it's, it's easy to get tripped up by that. Uh, they're simultaneous, yeah. not sequential. And the the final quadrant is um, reversal, and this is a lot mm. of fun. They find that. Any technology, when pushed far enough, tends to reverse or flip its characteristics. So, for example, hmm. uh, the highway was designed to enhance uh, travel, you know, to speed up, to allow more cars on the road, to allow people to get faster from A to B. But if you put too many people on the road at one time, you get a traffic jam. And that's, that's kind of the reversal of, of the characteristic of, of the highway. So they found that... Uh, all media do these four things. My dad was, mm. was always looking for a fifth or for an example where the four don't apply. It, it's also important to note that this only applies to human technologies. Uh, animals, you can't, you can't do a tetrad on a beaver dam, for example, because while sure a beaver dam affords certain things for a beaver, it doesn't bring back a technology for the beaver from the past that's been obsolesced. Um, and when you, when you push a beaver dam too far, I don't think it reverses the characteristics for the beaver. Um, so mm. it is important to note that this, this is a, a quirk of, of human innovation. Uh, I wonder, I mean, I, I, I would probably push on that today just because we yeah. mentioned at the top synthetic well, biology. Yeah. And, and there are some weird things that happen in uh, nascent genes that when an environment changes very dramatically, um, sort of retroactive features actually start to be turned on or expressed. Um, so, so I wonder if it's not animals, but maybe down at some other level of evolution, it happens. I wanted to push push into a certain space. You know, I've been trying to capture this and and catching it in some weird translation function called a sketchbox. You know, a, a doodle. But when you started talking about the laws of media and how they might be the laws of technology in general. Uh, w. Brian Arthur from the Santa Fe Institute has written a book called The Nature of Technology. And he articulates something that actually probably has echoes and compliments of McLuhan's work. He says that every new technology actually captures a new phenomena in the universe for human use. So it goes to your human use, but okay. it captures a new technology. So like the, the act of us being able to do uh, a neural network with machine learning is trying to capture some set of connectivity that goes between symbols within a sort of graph of knowledge that exists already in the universe. But we've been able to try to look for a way to capture it for human use. 
and and I think that's interesting. But he also talks about how it fractally um, and recursively deepens. So as the technology gets used more and more, it has what they call fractal uh, deepening, and 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 it sort of also creates entirely new challenges. They call these opportunity niches, which is that any new technology is actually kind of like a baby, and it doesn't quite have the ability to handle the world the way an old technology does. So it gets wrapped around with a bunch of old technologies to help it. And it has more needs, like five or 10 more needs for every one human need that it actually serves. So it well, actually becomes this feedback loop. Yeah, um, and that, that's a feature. That, um, every, every new technology, we basically use a new technology to do the old job. Yeah. Um, one environment sort of consumes another. And it's not until some time later that we generally get around to finding out what that new technology actually does well. Um, what Marshall, this, by the way, was probably one of the greatest insights repeatedly in the book that you can apply, right? Hmm. So film gets invented, and it just films a proscenium until Griffith invents a language, right, uh, for, for film. And then, you know, likewise, hmm. television gets invented, and it's presumably for movies, or if it's news, somebody's sitting still until people start realizing the television is an involving medium and uses the audience in a very different way. And there was a wonderful example he had in the 1950s. The quiz shows were on, mm. and the quiz shows were were rigged. Uh, uh, and and when the audience found out about this, they didn't like it. McLuhan would argue because the television producers had no idea of the relationship of that medium to the audience. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Marshall McLuhan in about 1960. If the audience can become involved in the actual process of making the ad, then it's happy. It's like the old quiz shows. They were great TV because it gave the audience a role, something to do. They were horrified when they discovered they'd really been left out all the time because the shows are rigged. Now, the, this was a horrible uh, misunderstanding of TV on the part of the uh, programmers. I found this clip particularly interesting. Um, uh, about 10 years ago, when I was chairman of Technorati, one of the first user-generated uh, content search engines, and this was right around the time when we were working with advertisers, and we realized that if consumers actually had their own content in the ad, so this is the beginning of influencer marketing, marketing through people's networks, but basically it was a more powerful thing if you showed up in the ad rather than just it coming top down. And that's essentially what, what McLuhan is forsaging here, basically saying if the audience had a role, something to do, if you put the audience to work, you had a much more powerful piece of media than if it just was stamped out more literary printing press style. Um, yeah, the thing is because um, the nature of the technology uh, involves the user um, sensorily, you know, it, and so when they're not allowed participation in the content, there's, there's that feeling of disconnect. That's why they, they crave this involvement, uh, according to McLuhan. Now, one of, one of Marshall's favorite things to do was telling people they didn't know the business that they were in, you know, um, and he got a lot of mileage out of that going to businesses like GE and IBM and telling them that actually, um, they were in the movement, they were in the information movement business, you know, not making light bulbs or, or this and that and the other thing. Uh, and that's actually something he got from uh, an early 20th century author, Mary Parker Follett, uh, who, it was a book, I think, called The Law of the Situation. Um, and, and that's a, a really fun thing to look at. It's an interesting, uh, it's, it, you know, Marshall angered a lot of people by, by telling them, you know, you don't know what business you're in, you're actually doing this or that. His work also, in a way, was a warning, right? He pointed out that the global village wasn't all happiness, that privacy might be in trouble, that when you invent new forms of media, you're going to be, you know, not just affecting our senses, but, but, but watch out, it could, it, it could not necessarily end up well. Yeah, I mean, he, he saw that technologies affect us on a few different levels. He constantly uses this phrase, the psychic and social consequences of technologies, hmm. and, uh, or personal and social. And by that, by personal, he means how, um, you know, this was before we had uh, something, you know, the, 
the discipline of neuroscience, um, which uh, shows us how technologies, how the things that we take in with our senses affect our brains and we rewire our brains, you know, um, constantly, in fact, um, most easily when we're young, but all through our lives, um, our brains are, are relearning and learning and adapting and uh, forming new neural pathways and all this. Um, and uh, so there's the brain that changes and then there's our senses um, that are constantly rearranging and new ratios. Um, and then there are the social consequences. Um, and that's uh, what happens when we take uh, our newly changed people and we try to get along with everybody else and um, we try to interact with this new world and we remake our world too. So um, I, you know, I go into classes, uh, into elementary school classes sometimes, and I teach them this really fun exercise. Uh, one of the main tools that Marshall used was this idea of figure and ground. Um, and he borrowed these terms from Gestalt psychology from a guy called Edgar Rubin in the early uh, 20th century. Um, who used the terms figure and ground to, to describe the structure of visible phenomena. Um, most people think of this in terms of foreground and background, but Marshall took it a lot further. Um, and, and so how I lead this exercise with children is uh, I get a big a whiteboard um, and I, I put the smartphone in the middle because, you know, nine-year-olds all have smartphones in their pockets. And I say, okay, now, what do you need in order for the smartphone to exist? Um, and they'll say electricity, so I'll put electricity up here, and they'll say um, internet, so I'll put internet, you know, over there, and they'll say, well, we need um, minerals and raw materials, put that up there, and we need education and information, and we need, you know, this and that and the other thing, and, um, you know, you can get 30 kids having a lot of fun yelling out things, and we fill a board, and um, you start to understand how everything is related together and all intermixed, and you could spend about half an hour doing that. And then I say to the kids, the kids, I say, now you wake up tomorrow morning and your cell phone doesn't work. Your smartphone doesn't work. And neither does your friends and they're never going to work again. And you hear them go, <gasps> because they just can't, they can't compute. You know, all their lives have been lived relating to themselves and to their friends into their world via these uh, devices and they just really cannot understand how they could do almost anything except maybe go to the bathroom without a smartphone. And this is, this is the most powerful point of that exercise is we, under, we really understand the consequences and the deep effects of these technologies when we take them out of the equation, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, figure minus ground, um, ground minus figure. And so this, this helps us. So, in this, so Andrew, in this one, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm really capturing this well. In this case, the, the figure is the iPhone or the, the, the object, the, the thing, Correct. the artifact. And the yep. ground is all that stuff that, yeah. that you need, actually, for the figure to work, to yeah. exist. And another word for ground is medium. And ah, so Marshall okay. says the medium is the message. He's talking about this ground. And the ground so is... The ground is the environment of services and disservices, of psychological and social consequences and effects. Mm. Yeah. You can argue that. that this whole pandemic allowed us to see the background of travel and how work worked yeah. and why we went to work. And now, now that we can remove from it and look at it, it's like, what was the point of the office and the three-hour commute? Something that would be impossible to imagine yeah. unless you made it go away. Well, you know, the pandemic forced us to try out a lot of things that have been really possible for a long time, things that Marshall saw back in the 60s, really, and that we've been able to do, you know, telecommuting, um, what we're doing here. I didn't need to come to Silicon Valley to talk to you guys. I haven't had to do that for 20 plus years. But well, I think I detect, I detect like a slight Canadian accent. Where exactly are you located in the world? I'm actually talking, I'm speaking from a small town called Wellington in Prince Edward County, Ontario. It's about oh, wow. two and a half hour drive east of Toronto. So yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Pretty far. Anyway, to, to fully balance out the geography, I'd like to bring, a, we have one more guest who I'd love to come in yeah. and join and listen to this. I'd like to bring in John Clippinger from MIT, who's probably up in New Hampshire now. Hey, John. 
Turn John, off your mute, you John. Because uh, Marshall would tell you that by amputating your sound, you're flipping into a... <laughs> you're not ready for that. He's just yet. giving us a precursor right. for the debate. That's right. uh, amplification results in amputation. I think that was uh, the catchphrase there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John, John, uh, you, uh, you're on our who second broadcast. Who is John? Who, who are John, you, tell John? Tell us who you are. John, John uh, uh, you have spent a life in artificial intelligent augmented systems. Wait, and, you're and, not John. I no, want to hear from John. Yes. Stop being the media. I want to pick him up, then I'll, I'll respond. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Well, what, what's really relevant to here, because Peter and I had a prior conversation, that, that uh, most in, one of the most influential books in my life was uh, Understanding Media. And I was in college, and uh, I read that book, and that really changed my way of looking at things and decided where I was going to go to graduate school. I mean, that and, and um, a number of other books. There was, there was, I was also interested in cybernetics. And, and so Norbert Wiener's cybernetics books, um, there was a whole slew of books that started to come out around um, the media and really thinking about technology as something that shaped us, and that we weren't shaping it, that we were embedded in it. And it was a whole new way of framing things that was quite uh, at variance with the prevalent way in which the, you, one was taught. And, uh, and so I was just fascinated by that. And I actually, I was interested also in myth and Levi Strauss and, and, and sort of how the, the construction of reality and how technology helped you construct reality. I remember I was at Yale at the time as an undergraduate and, and Carl Deutsch had a book about called Nerves of Government, and he was looking at a cybernetic model of government. Again, this notion of, a, of, of technology extending certain aspects of, of, of our body, our mind, our senses. Um, and that just became a whole new interpretive medium. And then from that, uh, learning and studying with Gregory Bateson, uh, and that, that whole, there, there's a whole slew of, of, of uh, sort of intellectual, in innovations that started to happen in that time. And I guess what I, one of the things that I would say was this idea that we're, we're not above technology, we're, we're embedded in it. Now there's a lot of work that came out later about sort of technology assessment and how do we assess technology, stand back from it. But I think, and I'd be interested in your, your reaction to this, but that that's sort of a false way of understanding it. I mean, it, it is, it, we're creating these scaffoldings around us. You could look at it, this as a, a form of epigenetic structures that we create that select for us and we select for them. There's a mutuality about the whole thing that is a very different framework than, than one is traditionally taught. John, a lot of your work is on identity, privacy, self-sovereignty, and these are exactly, I think, the kind of things that happen when we start extending our central nervous system into in into other media. Some people call Who it- Who is John? Image. Wait. Before we go too far, John, what do you do today? What what is what is your modus operandi? I I just I'm not sure if you're like actually just Max Hedrum, if Peter created you. <laughs> no, I'm, well, right now I'm at the MIT Media Lab, uh, and it was a couple of things working on there, City Science Group, um, and so I've been working in the whole field of being able to uh, how do you give people control of the personal data, but it's it's also uh, in the city science group is how do we create representations of communities that are living entities um, and really moving into things that are uh, predicated design around something that is, is, is self-organized. It's a living thing rather than a mechanical thing. Uh, this is uh, so I'm working with a number of projects, uh, not the least of which, which I think is pretty relevant to this, is the work of Carl Christian and sort of free energy principle and the new concept of Markov blankets. My view is that that's taking a lot of these ideas and and uh, formalizing them and putting them into a sort of a new kind of technology, a new kind of explanatory medium. Um, and then we're trying to apply them to cities and, and, and environments and how to design uh, sort of self-sufficient, self-organizing communities. Um, okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so you said epigenetics, you said Markov blankets, you said Carl Friston. <laughs> I, 
I, I don't even I think you're trying to do like a denial of cognition attack on me yeah. using language just to show me what it was like to be around Marshall or something like that. Well, I I, I don't want to but it there there what it well it, it, that's not that's not it, it's true. There, there are the, these ideas that came from you that that were sort of uh fragments that that didn't fit in any uh, predetermined pattern. Uh that you and, and so what you you sort of had to synthesize it on the fly, right? Um, but I do think it's part of a large, and I think we're in a, a new era where we're revisiting some of the same ideas that we had in the seventies, but yeah. system series and cybernetics. And, and so I remember getting a, a Wiener book. Uh, I think it was by Norbert Wiener that was called the human use of human, human beings. Being. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. God. Fascinating. And, and it's really coming back now, right? Because we're talking about like, you know, AI over. is going to eat the world, or you know, it, it's it's nobody totally. will have jobs anymore, and it's it's very naive, in some I ways, agree. people saying things like that because there's plenty to do. Look outside, there's plenty yeah, to well, do. I, mean, I, I think our concept of technology, there's so like, I mean, I did a lot in technology assessment. There's a whole bot, uh, office of technology assessment in the NSF, and it's the idea that we'll stand back, we'll make a decision that. What technology do we want or we don't want, and then we'll is turn this off. like TRI levels and things yeah, like that. Yeah, but it is yeah. it, it very naive. I, I think that's still behind a lot of the arguments mm. that you have and how you even look at AI. And, and, and so it, it's not recognizing that, that we're co evolving with these things, we're entangled in these things. Um, mm. and so when and I threw out Carl Frissons and yeah. I, I, was, I was doing that with some hesitation, but he's a neuroscientist, um, and he's he's the the most cited neuroscientist in the world. But he's also, he, he reminds, if you remember uh, one of the early people in this field was Warren McClulloch. Does that ring a bell to people? Um, what Warren McClulloch uh, invented McClulloch and Pitts, which was the first really neural networks. And he was, uh, he was the same time as Marshall. He was in that era when, and he, uh, he was, he's a polymath. He was, a, he was a philosopher. He was a, a psychiatrist. He was a mathematician. And he did the sort of mathematical, first mathematical models of neural nets. You know, you just made me think of something. I want to go back to Andrew. Andrew, who were the kinds of people that influenced, right. like that were contemporaries of Marshall, that he, you know, were, was just like, like opening up new ideas to him, you yeah. know, versus ideas coming from him or, or to your father as well, as they were kind of working together on these laws. Who were the people that they were like super excited about? Like they, they were like, <laughs> Ah, what what the heck is that? Um, really, the the contemporaries that that Marshall leaned on the most were the artists, frankly. Ah, yeah, uh, and uh, for reasons which which we discussed, um, he um, he surrounded himself with a few people. Um, colleagues like Edmund Carpenter were really important. Um, Edmund Carpenter and he were colleagues at St. Michael's College, University of Toronto. Um, they together founded this journal called Explorations um, hmm. and uh, applied for a Ford Foundation grant, which gave them uh, money to conduct seminars, interdisciplinary seminars at uh, the University of Toronto, which is um, it's in these culture and communication seminars that a lot of the early um, wow. ideas around uh, thinking about technology in this, in this kind of um, zoomed out way came about. Um, it's loosely called now the Toronto School of Communication, um, hmm. but it, it, it wasn't quite a, a school of thought. Um, Carpenter was a big influence on McLuhan. Um, he mentions Peter Drucker a lot, actually, um, in a lot of his works. Uh, Peter Drucker comes up, who's a, a business consultant, I believe, management. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and Marshall also... Um, in later years, worked a lot um, in dialogue with people. So hmm. after um, understanding media, most of his books were co-authored with other people. Um, and that's that's because Marshall developed a, a more dialogue style, um, talking things out loud. So he'd meet with his co-author for a few hours and they'd talk and the co-author would write things down and then go away and come back later. Um, and that was a way that Marshall could get a lot of things done without having to do, you know, the hard work of actually writing it, writing it down, which um, a lot of people took this to mean that he couldn't write. But people who say that don't aren't really familiar with his work because the man could write and you only have to look at his uh, literary criticism to understand uh, a variety. But, you know, even that is kind of a meta thing, right? Because like I've co-written a book and 
the act of you trading chapters and saying, okay, you take my chapter, I'll take yours. We'll try to figure out how to fix it or, or the art of having somebody, cause we had a ghostwriter before we figured out how to do what we were doing. And, and, and the act of that is a medium. The other writer reflects back and changes what you think. You know, I remember uh, Rafflin Broglio, a wonderful uh, tech writer and thinker and, and creative, creative writer who teaches uh, uh, just wonderful sort of ways of thinking about fiction, but also writes for Harvard Business Review. He would come back with something that I think I said, but I don't think I said it that way. And it, it would be so much better yeah. that it became this kind of um, this mediation or meditation back and forth that, that led something emergent. And, and, and so in a sense, the, the other people he did, he, he did his work with in dialogue were his medium. I'd love to connect some things up, up here. Uh, one of his other great influences, of course, was Tellier de Chardin. Chardin had this notion of the noosphere, this idea that as we started developing electric technology, we might all be connected. And, and McLuhan, who was um, a, a Catholic, didn't explicitly reproduce Chardin's theory, but Chardin thought that spiritually evolution was going to continue and that all of these extensions we were building were kind of the, the furthest of evolution and the furthest what we should be doing. And John and Mickey, both of you use strong biological influences in your approach to artificial intelligence and to systems. And I think there's a loop closing here that we can refer I, to biology, we build the future, and we go back to it. Computer, yeah, give me a comment on it, because another influential book to me was The Phenomenon of Man, Tia de Chaudin. And actually, I, and, and the other, the thing was that, that I think was sort of breaking things open was, was cross-disciplinary, that you could suddenly, mm. you were not locked into particular disciplines and it opened it up. And so what I did my master's thesis on was uh, I was interested in self-organizing systems. There's a man named Ross Ashby who did a lot of work on that. But I also was interested in what I called neural organisms, <laughs> which, which, which are like digital things. And this was a long time ago. And there was no term for it, but it took it from Thierry de Chardin, whereas he was saying, yes, there is a sphere of knowledge and it, and, and it, is, it organizes itself. It's based upon an extension of the same principles in biology. And so there was a whole set of thinkers that, that were now taking that, the self-organized systems, the systems theory. Hmm. But there yet had been things that are digital, you know, that we now we take for granted. There was yet the, the Internet. But this was all sort of intuited, you know, uh, and, and there's this, there was this conversation in, in sort of the late 60s about that that sort of tipped over into the 70s and eventually into the Internet. Um, and I love this idea of sort of the archaeology of, of technology. And, you know, you made the point, Andrew, the, the sort of retrieval component. And I always hear about futurists talking about blah, blah, blah. And I think futurists are about as good as a flipped coin. You know, they're just as, <laughs> as accurate. Um, but I am interested in people who do scenario planning, who explicitly look at sort of the, the long, big past and the eye of today, and then the long, big future and, and, and look for retrieval from the past, you know, sort of archaeology to figure out what might actually happen, you know, in the One future. of the best examples, Nick, of that was Marshall on privacy. Here he was sitting at the dawn of the computer era, able to look back to what he thought was the invention of privacy and look forward. And I'd love to share a clip of that now because it's one of the best pieces of looking back and looking forward I've seen. Uh, Omid, let's run privacy. 